all throughout this series, we are looking at the book of Isaiah and we're looking at it through the lens of these prophecies that were foretold about this coming of a king, this Messiah who was going to enter into the world and change everything. And through that, then we're looking at these gifts of the wise men that were brought to this young king and the wonder of that very first Christmas night. So in week one, Chris opened the scripture and we talked about the significance of Emmanuel, this name of God that, that, that is where we get our name as a church from, this experience of God with us. And, and we were invited from Chris to experience Christ this Christmas. And then last week in week two, Chris talked about the first of these three gifts that the wise men offered, the gift of gold. And we explored how we can steward our gold well as we understand Christ as king. We're challenged to practice God-first giving, to tithe as an act of worship, and to pursue joyful stewardship. This week, we are looking at that second gift that the wise men offered, the gift of frankincense. There are some things, probably for you as for me, that just spell Christmas for us, right? There are some things that that when you see it and experience it and sense it, it just spells the beginning of this season. For us, up until a few years ago when it got ruined, uh, it was that first post-Thanksgiving visit to the eighth floor display at Macy's where we would get our picture with Santa up until my brother and I were in our twenties, right? Up until they shut it down every year, we would go the next day and we'd often run into other ECC families who were also there getting that first picture with Santa that season. It's also cream kaka because I'm Norwegian and lessa and sugar cookies, you know, right before Christmas morning and carols by the candlelight with our ECC family on Christmas Eve Eve. There's these sights and these smells and these memories And these songs that for each of us just spell Christmas. Recently, there's been one song for me that's just become so significant in this season of Advent. And and ironically, it wasn't actually planned until Thursday night for them to do O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Uh, But O Come, O Come, Emmanuel for me is one of those songs that just marks this season when I hear it. it. It's like that song you reserve for Christmas that you don't want to listen to the rest of the year because when you hear it, it just spells this season. And when you think about it, this song, it's actually really haunting. It's really haunting. The lyrics of, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. And then another verse, O come, thou rod of Jesse free, thine own from Satan's tyranny, from depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory or the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. And another, O come thou day spring, come and cheer. Our spirits by thine advent here, disperse the gloomy clouds of night, and death's dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. These lyrics, they speak to this deep longing that we all have for the coming of Christ. And although the very foundations of this song weren't even begun to be laid until the 8th century, you can actually almost imagine it being sung even before that first Christmas, can't you? After 400 years of silence, living in oppression, the people of God, they're hungry for the coming of this Christ that was promised long ago through the prophets, for a world in which everything would be set right, for an opportunity to behold the majesty of the one who created them. And they might sing then, as we do today, O come, O come, Emmanuel. 
These lyrics, they speak so deeply to a longing that we even feel today in the season. There's a reason why songs like these are so timeless, why it's so emotional for many of us to even sing it in the season today. There's a place to write this in the blue notes that you'll find inside your bulletin. Even today, we still cry, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Don't we? Even today, we still cry, O come, O come, Emmanuel. We are filled with this longing for Christ to come into the lives and the homes of those we love and care about, for our families and our friends and our spouses and our siblings and our children and our coworkers and our parents, for a world without the pain and the heartbreak and the diagnoses and the losses and the battles that we faced this past year, for even just a moment in the busyness of this season to pause and to get to behold him, to experience the peace of Christ in the midst of the busyness of our jobs and our homes and our schools. And the final line of each of the verses in the hymn of rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. It's reminiscent of this foretelling of this coming king, this miraculous arrival of this Messiah that's found in the prophecies all throughout Isaiah. And so we're going to start this morning in Isaiah 60. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, open with me to Isaiah chapter 60. And then if you don't have a Bible at home, we would love to send you home with one for free. We keep them on the tables in the back of the room. So please grab one as you go. So in Isaiah 60, the majesty of this coming of the Messiah is foretold. Starting in verse 1, it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather, they come to you, your sons come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on your hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you and the wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah and all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. They shall bring good news, the praise of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you and the ramps of Neboeth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. Now, as I read that, parts of it might have sounded familiar, right? Because there are these parts of this prophecy in Isaiah 60 that that's foretold that later comes true in the coming of the Christ in Matthew, number, or in Matthew chapter 2, where we're told about these wise men who, when they see the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And what's notable, I think, about this passage is that just a few verses before, the wise men are visiting Herod in Herod's palace. And we're not told that they went before Herod and they offered him gifts or bowed before him, or worshipped him with exceedingly great joy. What's evident here is that these wise men, they knew who was worthy of their worship. They knew who was worthy of their allegiance. And they knew whose promise of salvation was true and trustworthy. And in worshipping these wise men, they offer not only their hearts, and not only their allegiance, 
but they offer the best of what they have with them. They offer these three gifts. There's a place to write this in your notes. Like the wise men, we are invited to respond with our hearts and our actions this Christmas. We're invited to respond with our hearts and our actions. So these gifts, gold, like we talked about last week, that's an easy gift to understand. In fact, if you were a wise man and you were following a star to go and visit a king who's been miraculously foretold, you might bring gold. You might bring gold, right? It's an easy to understand gift. It has value uh, that everyone understands. It's beautiful. It's a gift fit for royalty. But frankincense and myrrh, those are a little bit more difficult to understand, aren't they? Frankincense and myrrh, both of these, they're sweet-smelling products. They're an object of nature. What happens is that there's two separate types of trees, one that frankincense is derived from and one that myrrh is derived from. And you cut the bark, and when the bark is cut, it produces a sap. And when the sap dries, it dries into a teardrop. And you can either use it as incense or you can melt it down and make an essential oil. Uh, It's essentially just a a sweet-smelling fragrance. And frankincense, when burned, it gives off this citrus odor. And myrrh gives off this classic Christmas pine odor. Both were incredibly valuable in the time in which the wise men gave them. Frankincense was the more valuable of the two. At one point, it was worth six times its weight in gold. Both of these gifts are so important. And their value to this young king in a manger doesn't stop with their market value. There's this deep significance here for why the wise men would give these gifts to this foretold king. The significance of frankincense, it goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 30. That's the first time in scripture that we're introduced to this substance that's going to become so important in the story of the birth of the Christ. In this section of scripture in Exodus 30, God is instructing Moses on the construction of the tabernacle. It's this place where the presence of God was going to dwell with his people, where the people through the priests could offer prayers and atonement for their sins. And within this tabernacle is this altar that's to be used for incense. And the instructions for the construction of the altar, they're specific. And so if you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Exodus chapter 30. We're going to start in verse 1. In verse 1, the instructions are given for this altar. It says, you shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. Its horn shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its side and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding on two opposite sides of it, you shall make them and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry them. You shall make the poles of wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord and throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. 
So this altar, it's to be built in this very specific way, constructed by these specific woods with gold on it and horns. And it's built in this way to portray its significance in the temple. The place where it's supposed to be set is the place where God will meet with them. And so there's this incense that's to be burned on it. And scripture is really clear uh, that there's an unauthorized incense that you shouldn't burn on it. So if there's an unauthorized incense, it only would make sense that there's an authorized incense that should be burned on the altar. And so in verses 34 through 38, we find out what this incense is. It says, the Lord told Moses, take sweet spices, sweet spices with pure frankincense. Of each there shall be an equal part. And make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourself. It is for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes it like, or whoever makes any like it to use as a perfume shall be cut off from his own people harsh, right? There's this incense that's to be constructed. It's the only incense that's to be offered on the Lord's altar in the Lord's tabernacle, and it contains frankincense, this very same gift offered as a part of the trio of gifts that first Christmas. And this component of frankincense, it serves a few different roles in scripture. The first is this. Frankincense is a priestly offering, a priestly offering. In scripture, the only people who are allowed to offer frankincense on the altar are the priests themselves, the individuals who have been chosen by God in the Old Testament to mediate the relationship between God and man, to hear the prayers of the people and communicate them to God himself, to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people for the forgiveness of their sins. We see this all throughout scripture. In fact, any time that frankincense is mentioned, it's always mentioned along with these priestly sacrifices. In Leviticus, we see it mentioned alongside grain offerings that are to be scented with frankincense. In Jeremiah, we see it where the Lord, through Jeremiah, invites Israel to offer a sin offering using frankincense. And in Nehemiah, when the tabernacle is reconstructed, frankincense is to be one of the first things returned to it. It's an important element in worship. It's one that's both closely guarded... You'll notice there's no specific instructions for how much to be added to the mixture. It's a closely guarded secret. And it's crucial for Israel's worship of God, for their sacrifices to him, and for their relationship with him. Secondly, we find this. We find that frankincense, it's symbolic of God's hearing of prayers. You see, we use symbols all over in our church services today. Don't we? Over here, we have the cross and we have the candles and we have the Bible open to the passage of scripture that we're in today. We use symbols all the time in our church services today. And back in the Old Testament, frankincense, it was an important symbol for the people in their services. Frankincense, when it was burned, it produced this incredible cloud of white smoke. And we see this highlighted in places like Song of Solomon, where Solomon's arrival on his wedding day, it's compared to a column of smoke that's been perfumed with myrrh and frankincense. Besides being a really good simile in Song of Solomon, a book that really likes really good similes, this cloud of smoke that was created by the burning of frankincense, it was symbolic for the people to be reminded that their prayers were being lifted before God by the priests and that God was hearing them that their sacrifices were being accepted. 
It was a means by which they could see and remember that God heard them and that God accepted what was being offered. The other role of frankincense that we see, especially here in this Exodus passage, is that frankincense is to be set apart. It's to be kept from being ordinary. Frankincense, it wasn't meant to be just another fragrance, right? It wasn't meant to be a perfume that you could go to the store and pick up and spritz on and walk around with. And in fact, the passage in Exodus, it's so specific, it's so clear that it should, that it should never be used as a perfume, that it should never be constructed as just another fragrance that you use throughout your day. If frankincense, if it was going to continue to hold any of its power, any of its symbolism, it had to be unique. And it had to be distinct from any other substance like it. And the mere fact that it was only to be used within the temple for sacrifices and for prayer offerings, it would lead the people to remember its meaning and therefore its importance every time they smelled it. Every time they experienced it, they would be reminded that God hears them and sees them and hears their prayers and accepts their sacrifices. So why this gift to the infant Christ? Why frankincense with all of its temple symbolism? It all has to do with who Jesus will be. In the same way that this offering of gold to Jesus was symbolic of Jesus as our king, this offering of frankincense, it serves to remind us of another role that Jesus will play, that of our high priest. So if you were here for our Genesis series this past summer, you might remember a priest named Melchizedek. And Melchizedek has this small section of the Bible where he's referenced, but he is so important through that. And as a refresher, Melchizedek, he was a priest in the time of Abraham, who after this battle that Abraham wins, breaks bread with Abraham, he blesses him in the name of God, and he receives a tithe of part of Abraham's plunder. And it shows his importance in this story. So the author of Hebrews in the book of Hebrews is trying to communicate over and over again that Jesus is better, that Jesus is better than we could imagine, that Jesus is better than the Old Testament heroes, that Jesus is better than the old covenants. And one of the people that he uses as a foil to demonstrate how much better Jesus is, is Melchizedek, the priest. In chapter seven, beginning in verse 23, it says this, says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, meaning Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy and innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And then continuing in verse 8, the author goes on to say, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. 
They serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Hear this connection between frankincense in the Old Testament as a temple offering and frankincense in the New Testament as an offering to this boy Jesus, this this infant in the manger, this Messiah, it becomes clear. So in the Old Testament, frankincense was offered by the priest in order to provide for the salvation of the people and the assurance that their prayers were being heard. And Jesus, this passage says, from the beginning, he was appointed to be a better priest. The one, as scripture says, who is able to save to the uttermost, who is able to do what no other priest could do. Not one who mediates in a tent that's been made by hands according to instructions prescribed in Exodus, but one that ministers in the true tents in heaven. This idea of a priest, it seems pretty foreign to us today because we're pretty far removed from the story of the Old Testament. We're pretty far removed from the culture of the Old Testament. And so this idea, to make it a little clearer, it's as if the the author of Hebrews is trying to get at the idea that Christ serves as this ultimate advocate for us. That in the same way that a priest would mediate in the temple, Christ is mediating for us. He communicates with the Father for us. He's the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And that, the author of Hebrews is making the point, is the one who is worthy of our worship. So how do we... In the season of Advent, how do we practically press into the idea of Jesus as our high priest today? There are a few things that we can do. The first one is this. We can offer full worship in the waiting. Offer full worship in the waiting. Frankincense in scripture is the symbol that communicated the fullness of worship. That the sacrifice had been completed. That it was final. And often in seasons like Advent, it can be so hard for us to worship fully as we look back on a year that might have been really difficult. Or as we look forward to everything that has to get done before everyone wakes up on Christmas morning. But we're not invited in scripture and in the story of Jesus to be people who only offer just a little worship here and there. Instead, we are invited to be people who worship generously in light of this ultimate advocate who came for us. And like the wise men, we are invited to fall before the king in worship, to offer the best of what we have. So what would it look like for us in this Advent season as a church to be people who, despite everything that can weigh us down, worship fully in the midst of this season? Well, there's an author named John Oswalt, and he writes on this Exodus passage. And he says the whole point of the instructions about how to build the tabernacle and the altar and how to formulate the incense, the whole point of all of that, it was making more of a point of who God is than it was how to do a construction project. It wasn't the Home Depot step-by-step guide. It was making a point of who God is. And the whole point of the separateness of frankincense was that these things that were not sacred are now being made sacred. These things that were just a part of ordinary life are now being made ways in which we can worship God together. There's no part of our life that's cut off from God, he says. He says everything that we do, we think, or we say is related to him. 
And so in this season, we are invited to worship fully. Yes, through songs and through candlelight hymns and through remakes of our favorites. But we're also invited to worship through the way that we live and we interact with one another in this season. When we give gifts, we are invited to remember the ultimate gift that was given. When we sit around the table on Christmas Eve and we break bread with family and friends, we're invited to remember this God who came near and who broke bread with his disciples. And when we wish people joy and peace through this season, we remember who ultimately gives it. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, he once had an exchange with a woman about where worship would happen. Her confusion is about whether or not worship is going to be done on the mountain, as the Samaritans believed, or in the tabernacle in Jerusalem, as the Jews believed. And Jesus tells her, he says, the hour is coming, and it's now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Jesus' birth had ushered in a new way to worship, a way that opened for us to worship fully in the waiting, wherever we are, whenever we are. And as we worship in spirit and in truth, we're also invited to worship the truth, not the shadow. To worship the truth, not the shadow. I don't know about you guys, but I find that it is so easy in this season to idolize moments and to miss the meaning, isn't it? It's so easy to idolize moments and to miss the meaning. To idolize the moments that we gather together, or the moments around the tree, or the moments even at Christmas Eve Eve, and to miss the meaning of what's actually happening in the room. Scripture, when it talks about frankincense, there are a few passages where God talks about how he's not going to accept the frankincense that's been offered because it's being offered apart from true worship. The people, they've begun to follow idols, and they haven't lived up to their vows to worship God alone. In this season, I think our idols can look a lot more innocuous than a golden cow, right? It can look like wanting to host the perfect party at all costs or to have the perfect gift for everyone. It can look like numbing ourselves to what God is doing in our midst through technology or through overindulging. And in addition to the prescribed properties, incense all throughout scripture and all throughout the ages was used to symbolize this cleansing of spaces, cleansing of spaces. And this season, I think I ask myself the question, and I wonder for all of us, what cleansing of idols needs to happen in our heart and our home in order to prepare us fully to receive our king? What has the potential to distract us in this season from all that God wants to do in and through us and in our midst? What would it look like for us in a season where it's really easy to idolize perfection or really easy to numb ourselves from the ability to focus on the glorious majesty of Advent to specifically choose to fast from or to turn away from the idols that could so easily distract us. The wise men recognized that this coming of the Christ was going to cause them to move outside of their comfort zone, that it was going to cause them to come and fully worship at this manger, to give up what was precious in order to receive a gift that wouldn't fade or be lost or be stolen from them. And so in the same way in this season, we are invited to cleanse our hearts and our homes of idols and instead to come to the manger and to truly recognize and receive our Savior for all he is. To not miss what's actually happening. To not miss the truth because of all the shadows. The majesty of an infant king who would grow to save us from our sins. Invites us into this new kingdom that can actually impact how we live our lives now. This Advent, we're also invited to dare to believe that your high priest advocates for you. 
he advocates for you. In the priestly system, this visual of frankincense, it would provide assurance that your prayers were being heard and that your offerings were being accepted. And you can almost imagine if you were a person of God in that age and you had offered up prayers or you had offered up sacrifices for your sin, how heartwarming it would be as you looked up and you saw the cloud of smoke rising. And as you smelled the incense and you knew that they had been offered up, that they were being received, that they were going heavenward towards God. The Bible tells us that the good news is that this old system is no longer necessary because our high priest does not mediate once or twice a day or once a year for our sins, but he consistently advocates to the Father on our behalf. He is on our side, which means that the prayers that are being spoken whether they're ones that are spoken out loud or they're the ones that in the season you whisper in your heart, they're being heard by the creator of the universe. And it means that Jesus' sacrifice for sinners, it's bigger than we could ever imagine. That the forgiveness to be found in his death and his resurrection, it's not a yearly tradition that we would just touch base on every 365 days, but it's this constant invitation to experience him in the fullness of who he is and to dare to believe that he hears us that he cares for us, and that he forgives us. And so take comfort in that this season. These gifts at the manger, they mean more than we could ever dare to imagine. These gifts at the manger are more than just gifts being given. They're symbolic of who Jesus is and who he will be and what he does in our lives. I think we all know a gift giver in our lives who is just nauseatingly good at what they do, right? It's like that person where you could give them a list and they'll get something more perfect than what you specifically asked for. We all know one of those people in their life. In my life, it's my mom. My mom is an excellent gift giver. Those of you who know her can testify to that. She is excellent at giving the perfect gift at the perfect moment. So this past week, uh, my cousin had her firstborn son, a little guy named Bishop Percy. It's a cute name. So although gifts were given at this baby shower... And a few other times, my mom, before Bishop Percy and his parents left the hospital, called the hospital gift shop, and she ordered this other gift, a onesie, for him to be able to take home. And I thought about that experience this past week. And I thought, Advent is a little like that, isn't it? This baby's been born, and that there's a season coming where we'll come home, and every longing will be fulfilled. And in the meantime, we are invited in the middle of this time between the coming of Christ and going home. We are invited to offer our gifts in the middle of a season filled with questions and worries. In the middle of a season where we cry for the full coming of the king, where we say, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, come and ransom us. In this season, we are invited to respond not just with our words, but with our actions. And we're invited to identify what's precious to us and to bring it to the king, offering it as a sacrifice and as an act of worship. And we're invited to be people who worship generously this king, this high priest who changes everything for us. And in that, we have the opportunity to experience God with us. Let's pray. God, thank you for the sacrifice that you made so many years ago, coming into the world as an infant. God, thank you that you experienced what it was like to be us, and now you advocate, Jesus, to the Father on our behalf. God, that you are on our side. 
And so, God, would you help us in this season to be able to see and recognize you in all things? Would you help us to be able to focus our, our attention on you and to worship you? And would you help us be able to do it fully in a season where so many things can distract us? And so, God, help this uh, season to not be a season that we just pass through, but help it to be a season that helps us to take a step forward in our relationship with you. And so, God, be with us as we do that. In your name we pray. Amen.